Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm 23, one of my favorite psalms, probably the most well-known of all the psalms. I, I know countless non-believers who have this psalm memorized. I can think of how many hundreds of thousands of soldiers have had this psalm be the last words that they have heard before they were ushered into eternity. What a beautiful psalm. What a familiar psalm. And we all know familiarity breeds contempt. And so I want to read this psalm, and I want to ask the Lord, before we dive into it, that we would have ears to hear as if this were the first time that we have heard this psalm. That God in His faithfulness and in His grace would enable us to hear this psalm for the very first time this morning. Psalm chapter 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, give us ears to hear. Open our eyes to see. Soften our hearts to receive. You are such a good shepherd. You are the great shepherd. You are our shepherd. Teach us how to follow you this morning in a way that would show to all of the other people around us, we follow the best shepherd there is. And may you receive all the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of the Psalms, or the nightingale of the Psalms. It's so well known that when we come to it, it's almost like, well, we know this. We know everything there is to know. We're good. We can move on. Let's just uh, talk about it for ten minutes and move on to some other psalm. As Brian said, there is so much in this psalm that it will require a lot of speedy work to get through, which we will be able to get through. A little bit of background for you. Just three points for background. Number one, this is written by David. It's a psalm of David. Uh, My subtext, my subheading under Psalm 23 says a psalm of David. So it was written by David. Number two, this psalm is actually the second installment in really a trilogy of Psalms. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 all go together. Uh, maybe next summer in our summer through the Psalms again, as we're probably going to make this a tradition in our church. Um, maybe we'll look at those three in one Sunday to see how they all fit together. Um, it really flows. Psalm 22 is about the past. Psalm 23 is about the present. Psalm 24 is about the future. Psalm 23 is Uh, quoted by Jesus on the cross. Uh, Much of it's quoted by him on the cross. It's all about the suffering servant. In fact, the way that I've always remembered 22 and 23, uh, you cannot have the peace of 23 before uh, the cross of 22. 
22 is all about the suffering servant. 23 is all about the providing shepherd. 24 is all about the reigning sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Psalm 23, or 22 is all about the cross. Psalm 23 is all about the crook, the shepherd's crook. And Psalm 24 is all about the crown, the king's crown. But a third aspect of background is I believe that we might have read this psalm or heard this psalm or understood this psalm maybe with the wrong emphasis. And granted, I want to just admit my own bias and my own glasses when I come to the text. Um, I, I read Scripture as a whole, trying to find fuel for my own soul and ammunition for my soul to fight in the day of trouble, as we heard last week. Uh, I'm preparing for the day of trouble. I, I don't have really any trouble going on in my life at this moment, but I'm preparing for it. It's going to come. Trials and tribulations do come, so I know it's going to happen. And so maybe it's my own glasses that I look at and the own viewpoint that I have. Um, But I believe that the emphasis of Psalm 23 is not the green pastures. I believe the emphasis of Psalm 23 is the valley of the shadow of death. And I, I think I can prove that to you biblically as we go through this psalm. Yes, those who follow God are going to go through times of pure bliss, unadulterated happiness. Yes, it will happen. But those who follow God will go through painful times beyond anything that you thought you could bear. This psalm gives us the proper perspective on suffering, on how to suffer well. If you remember in our study of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul wrote, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we looked at that word granted, literally gifted. You've been given a Christmas box wrapped up, a present, and inside when you open it up, it's toil, it's trials, it's suffering, it's pain, it's hardship. It's a gift. Psalm 23 helps us understand suffering as the gift that it is, the proper perspective in the midst of hard times. That's really, First Peter, I would encourage you to write down First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If we had more time, we'd go to it, but um, for the sake of time, just write it down, look it up on your own time. You remember joy and painful circumstances go hand in hand. He says, you rejoice exceedingly with great joy, even though for a little while you have been distressed by trials of many kinds. Joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive, and I believe that Psalm 23 will teach that to us yet again. There are so many different ways to outline this text. I want to give you the outline that I believe will help us understand this text the best as far as from the psalmist perspective. Really, if you look at it, as we read through it, there is a shift. It's subtle, but there's a shift. Verses 1 through 4, or 1 through uh, 3, you see the psalmist say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He does this. He does this. He does this, verse 3. Then verse 4, there's a shift in that pronoun to you. It's no longer he does this, it's you. Verses 4 and 5, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. And then, verse 6, there's a shift again. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life in the future. I believe that the outline that will best help us understand this text 
is really just three simple points, past, present, and future. I believe verses 1 through 3 are a remembering. That's why I thought this psalm would fit perfectly with what Jeff Kirkland preached last Sunday of a theology of remembering. It's a remembering. The only way that David can say, this is what my shepherd does, is because he's done it in the past. He's not saying, this is what my shepherd is doing now. When he starts talking that way of doing in the present tense, that's verses 4 and 5. This is what he's doing. This is what I am doing. I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are with me. So I believe this psalm is written in verses 4 and 5. It's written in the valley of the shadow of death. And so in the valley of the shadow of death, David is looking back saying, this is what my shepherd does in the past. This is what I know he will do here in the present. And this is what I look forward to in the future. He's stuck in the valley. He's stuck in the midst of the deepest darkness in his life. And yet he says, I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So that is what we will take for our outline. Looking at the past, looking in the present, looking in the future. So let's start with the past. We're going to say it this way. Number one, remember the shepherd's provision in your past. Remember the shepherd's provision in your past. Verses one through three. David starts by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. That's really the whole point of the psalm. Jesus is the shepherd. He is the great shepherd, as John writes. The Lord, Yahweh, his father is the shepherd. God is our shepherd. The first question that we have to ask ourselves is, is he our shepherd? Is he our shepherd? Because if he is not our shepherd and we are trying to find the peace of Psalm 23, we'll never find it if he is not the shepherd. If he is our shepherd, then what does that make us? It makes us sheep. Which, if you have the picture, some, you know, Thomas Kincaid painting with the shepherd and just like nuzzling up with the sheep. Just aren't you so precious and cute? That's adorable. Uh, It's just not reality. One writer says it this way. When the Bible calls Jesus our great shepherd and us his sheep, It is a very important and well-meant spiritual insult. Sheep, a sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or dog never does. By the way, this is written by a shepherd who became a theologian, a literal shepherd who became a theologian and started writing commentaries on the Psalms. Um, Even when you do find lost sheep, he goes on, the lost sheep brushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its two front legs, two hind legs together, throw it over your shoulder, and carry it home. If I can say it honestly, sheep are stupid. They really are. Um, Even as we go through this text, the reason why the, the shepherd has to make you lie down in quiet waters is because if you hear as a sheep loud, rushing river, you won't go near it because you're so afraid. You know, sheep don't have a protection mechanism. Their protection mechanism is if they're scared, they just fall over. That's all they do. I'm scared, I'm done. That's, that's it. No running away. They're too big. They're too bogged down with their wool. They're just dumb animals. And there's a very, very kind and well-meant spiritual insult when we are called sheep. We need rescuing thoroughly. We need rescuing constantly. We constantly need our shepherd to do the job of protecting and guiding and helping. 
we don't know. Sheep don't know where to find grass. And so they will literally, and you can, you can literally find this on YouTube. If you, if you search for sheep falling off cliffs, you can literally find sheep that are looking to find grass to eat. And there's this one, like one tiny single blade of grass sticking out of a cliff. And they walk up to it and they say, oh, food. And they try to eat it and they fall off to their death. That's how dumb we are. That's how dumb we are. We don't know where to find sustenance that will truly sustain. We say, oh, that'll help me, and then we die. We don't know how to protect ourselves. So when the Bible says the Lord is our shepherd and thus calls us sheep, we need to, as Micah said this morning, understand our dependence upon God. That's what this is saying. We are utterly dependent. If a sheep does not have a shepherd, that sheep will die. The Lord is our shepherd. And because the Lord is our shepherd, my Bible says, I shall not want. And that is probably your translation as well. This is a difficult translation, and it's really the reason why they kept it this way, even though it could be more clearly written or translated, they kept it this way because this is the Old English and so many people had memorized it that they didn't want to change it. But it, it has a, a connotation in it. It sounds like there's a sense of, I shall have no desire for anything. And that's not at all what it's saying. It's not saying that if God is your shepherd, then it doesn't mean you have desires that go unmet or unfulfilled. That's not what this passage is saying. You may have desires that you feel like they are not being met. I thought God was going to take care of my desires. I have wants. And this passage says, I shall not want. What does this mean? It means, if I can translate it this way, there is nothing that I lack that I need. There is nothing in life that I need that I'm lacking. So it's not that we don't have desires. We may have many desires that are unmet. But what it's saying is, I shall not be in want. I shall not have a need for something that the shepherd does not provide for me. And the implications of this are enormous. Look at what David is saying. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I have all that I need. Meaning two things. Number one, if I have God, I have everything that I need. You can take away everything else and I have everything that I need. And number two, what flows out of God, of him being my shepherd, is a benefit to my soul and supplies and provides for all of my needs. So Christ and his blessings are all that we ever need. Um, Matthew 6, Jesus says this in a different way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be added uh, unto you. Does that mean that you're going to get your brand new car or brand new house? No, it's not prosperity gospel. This is very clearly not prosperity gospel. Because it's saying you'll definitely have need, or definitely have wants that are unmet, but you will not need anything that God does not supply. There's nothing that you need that God will not give to you. So, since he is our shepherd, we have no unmet needs. I think that's crucial. We need to make sure we define needs the right way and wants and desires the, the right way. Right? If you have children, you know exactly what this is. Um, Chelsea says, Daddy, I need a fig bar. No, you really don't need a fig bar. You could go the whole day without a fig bar. You could go the whole week without a fig bar. Do you really need a fig bar? Daddy, I need to go on the swing. Do you need that? We do the same thing with our Heavenly Father. 
Father, I need this. Oh, you don't really need that. You, you want that, and it's not the best for you right now. What you need, I provide. And there's a list of the things that we need and how God provides for them. Verse 2. This is what God has done for David so he can recount. This is what God does as our shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So, number one, we have sustenance. He gives us nourishment. Green pastures, so not dead grass. He gives us good nourishment. He takes us to a place where we can have nourishment. But not only that, he makes me to lie down there because as a sheep, you are always in a somebody's going to hurt me mode. Somebody's, somebody's out there anxious, anxiety, what's happening, and you can never just sit down, rest, relax. And so the shepherd says, I've got it. I've got your back. You're safe. You're protected. You can lie down and eat. You can lie down and eat. You don't have to go to the edge of the cliff. I'll give you sustenance right here in the green pastures. He also leads you beside quiet waters. Not only does the shepherd provide the best food possible and protection as you eat, but literally, my Bible says he leads me beside quiet waters, or your Bible might say still waters. This might be very technical, but it's incredibly helpful. It's enormously helpful. Literally, the Hebrew says, he leads me beside quieted or stilled waters. Or you could say it this way. He leads me beside waters that have been stilled. Why does that matter? Sheep, when they come to water, do one of two things. If it's a rushing river, they are freaked out by the noise and will not put their face in to drink. So they will die. If it's a rushing torrent of a river, they will die because they will not go near it. But you get one or two gutsy sheep and they think, we'll make it. Number two, what happens to those sheep? So we've got all of the scaredy-cat sheep that are hanging on the bank of the river. I'm not going near that rushing river. And then you have the one or two bold sheep. They go to the river, and because their wool is so thick and the water starts getting on top of it and into it, it bogs them down and it will drown them. They will become so heavy and bogged down that as they try to enter into that river to drink because it's splashing all over them, they will drown. So what does the shepherd have to do? You're not always going to find still waters that you can walk by. What does the shepherd have to do? He walks by a rushing torrent of a river and says, I can make this drinkable. What does he have to do? He has to collect rocks. He has to set up a dam. He has to make a blockage so that you can be quiet and rest and drink and not be afraid. Isn't that just a beautiful picture of what happens? In the midst of trials and the torrents of a river, God says, you will find sustenance in this. I will nourish your soul through this. And so his sovereignty is on display as he leads the sheep to stilled waters, to quieted waters that otherwise would be a raging river. Uh, Men, you know this from our Bible study, the shepherd leader at home, the analogy of of leading. You remember the example that Tim Whitmer gave when he was in Israel of the shepherd leading the sheep as God leads us beside quiet waters. Um, Tim Whitmer was on the bus on uh, a tour in Israel, 
you see shepherds and sheep everywhere in Israel when you're touring there. And so the um, tour guide made it a point to say, you will never find a shepherd driving his sheep. You never stand behind the sheep driving them, telling them, go there, go there, go there. The shepherd's always in front of the flock, leading them to where they're supposed to go. And he made a point of this. You'll never see this. Uh, you'll never see somebody driving. You'll never, you never made a point of it. So much so that one day as they were on their tour, there was a flock of sheep and there was somebody driving from behind. And everybody on the bus, wait, 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 you got it wrong. You got it wrong. Look, I see you were wrong. There's somebody, there's a shepherd driving from the back. And the tour guide thought, I was wrong. I got to figure out what's going on. This never happens because they'll just scatter. They won't go anywhere. So he gets off the bus, talks to the man. What's going on? Everybody sees, you know, the motions. What are they talking about? Comes back on and with a smile says, oh, that wasn't the shepherd. That's the butcher. God, our great shepherd, leads and we follow. He's not going to drive. Fathers, what a beautiful picture for us. Do not drive your children. Do not force them or push them. Lead them. I think the New Testament would say, don't exasperate them. God doesn't do that to you. You can't do it to your children. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Verse 3 He restores my soul. It literally could mean two things. One of two things. Either he saves my soul. You remember that from Psalm 19, that the word restores our soul, and it literally means transforms our soul or saves our soul. So this could be a reference to salvation, and more often than not in the Psalms, it is a reference to salvation. But there are other times when it's just refreshment. Um, You could put that word there. He refreshes my soul. He brings nourishment and sustenance and refreshment to my soul. I'm dry. I'm weary. I'm in the valley. I'm in the shadow of death. And yet he still restores and refreshes my soul. I don't think we have to land on one or the other. I think it can be both. The reality is once we are saved, that is when the battle begins. A lot of people think I'm going to get saved and then everything's going to be roses for me. It's the exact opposite. When you get saved, only through many trials and tribulations will you enter the kingdom of heaven, Paul writes. So we know We are going to constantly, once we are saved, once our souls have been transformed, we know that we are going to need constant refreshment and nourishment. I believe that's what that verse is saying. He restores my soul. He provides that refreshment. And this is what I love about this psalm. Please note, David has said that the good shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures and I get to eat the choicest food. And he leads me beside quiet waters and I get to drink of the sweetest, most refreshing waters. But those two things in verse 3 are not there. God restores the soul. You're not looking to the things that God gives to restore your soul. How many times do we do this? Say, well, I know God restores, but he does it through these means. No, God restores the soul. And the psalmist says, not the green pastures and the quiet waters restore my soul. The good shepherd restores my soul. I love that. Here's my question to us. What is it that you are looking to to bring you happiness, to bring you satisfaction, to bring you fulfillment? What is it that you think you are lacking that you are not awaiting it to be fulfilled by God alone? Maybe it's friendships, maybe it's a job, maybe it's money, 
Maybe it's position. Maybe it's power. It could be so many different things, but the reality is the only place where you will ever come to a place of rest in life is when you say, the Lord is all I have and the Lord is all I need because He is the one that restores my soul. Not the green pastures, not the quiet waters. It's God alone. If the Lord is your shepherd, then you lack nothing. Whatever you think you are lacking, you're not lacking anything. And ultimately, that is the the defining picture of knowing when we're seeking a good thing that God has given to us, turning it into a God thing. If we think we need it and we're not getting it and we're saying, if I don't get that, I will not be satisfied or fulfilled, then we are ultimately saying, I am lacking things that I need. And we're turning a want into a need and not saying God alone restores my soul. He guides me, end of verse 3, in paths of righteousness He guides me, he leads me and guides me. He pushes me into ruts. Literally, it's ruts of righteousness. He carves out these paths so we know exactly where we are supposed to walk. Where are these paths laid out for us? They're laid out for us in Scripture. We know how we are supposed to walk. Again, New Testament would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. There is a rut that God, our good shepherd, has given to us. This is where you walk. And he leads us every Sunday. He leads us every Thursday. He leads us every time we dive into the Word in those ruts of righteousness. But he doesn't do it for our ultimate good. He does it for his ultimate glory. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is all remembering. David couldn't say these things if they hadn't taken place already. We have to remember the shepherd's provision in our past. You all remember 1 Samuel 17. You might not remember the chapter, but I know you remember what happens. David and Goliath. David lives this out in Psalm 23. He also lives this out, this idea of remembering the past faithfulness of the good shepherd. You remember when he's standing before Goliath, even before then, he's standing before Saul and saying, I want to fight this giant. And in 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 through 37, Saul's saying, no, you're just a shepherd boy. You don't know how to fight. You've never been in a battle. And what does he say? He says, I know I can, I know I can kill that man. I know I can. Piece of cake. Why? What does he say? You remember? I've killed bears. I've killed lions. All of these things have come up against me, and God has given me the power to defend the sheep. How much more so will I destroy this Philistine? I know I can do something in the future because of what God has provided in the past. I know it. We saw that in Psalm 77, a theology of remembering. Also in 1 Samuel chapter 7, um, you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. It was taken away, and then there's an amazing story of what happens when they stole it and everything that goes on uh, wrongly in their camp because the Ark of the Covenant is in their midst. The Israelites get the Ark of the Covenant back, and in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel does something that we need to do constantly. He raises an Ebenezer. Raises an Ebenezer. What is that? It's just a monument of stones. Stones of remembering, your Bible might say. It might not translate it Ebenezer. It might say stones of remembering. Uh, Ebenezer, it literally means up until now, the Lord has helped us. Up until now, the Lord has helped us. So, what would happen? They got the Ark of the Covenant back. They're rejoicing. And they set up this tower of stones called an Ebenezer, saying... 
remember the faithfulness of our God. Up until now, to this point, God has been in our, our help. And we know that he will always be our help. We know it will not stop. We know he doesn't change as we saw in Psalm 77. We need to do this constantly. Can I practically give you a suggestion? Brian Nix would know this, and all the college students that went um, on the college retreat would know this from the spiritual disciplines of a godly life in uh, Don Whitney's book, um, journaling. How do we tangibly, practically raise Ebenezer's? If any of you go out on the patio while you're doing donut time and you start stacking up stones, I don't think we're going to go, that's godly. I think we're, are you okay? You, you got, it's very hot out here today. Heat exhaustion? How do we do this practically? How do we raise Ebenezer's practically? Journaling? Being able to go back and see, I've been praying for this, God answered it, and then years later when you look back and you see how God was faithful, he answered it. We don't have to fear. We need to remember corporately. That's one of the things that we do when we come together is we remember God's character corporately. Write down these two passages again for time. We're not going to look at them, but Psalm 105, verses 5 through 24. Psalm 105, verses 5 through 24. The whole psalm is about all of the people of Israel coming together and remembering the character of God corporately because we forget. So it's me up here saying, please remember God's faithful. Please remember he's a good shepherd. And here's all the ways that he provides. But it's not just a corporate remembering. There's a private, individual remembering. And this is in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. There is a private, individual remembering. We're going to get to this psalm later in the summer, Lord willing. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and forget not any of his benefits. And then he just starts recounting them. He's he's a father to the orphan. He's taken care of me. He's provided for my needs. He forgives my sins. It just goes through the list. We need to have corporate remembering, private remembering. And the reality is, as we talked about on Thursday night, all of these things in the book of Psalms are pre-cross. The cross is God's Ebenezer raised up for you and I to say, no, there is no way whatsoever that God will deny us or will not show us mercy. He is always there for us. He's always there for us. He gives good gifts to his children, so we must celebrate the victories of our God in the past. That leads into verse 4. Number 2. Not only do we need to celebrate the victories of our God in the past and remember the provision of our shepherd in the past, number two, we need to trust the shepherd's provision in our present trials. Trust the shepherd's provision in our present trials. Verse four, even though I walk, or literally we could, uh, the tense is, even though I am walking, even though I am currently in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Valley of the shadow of death. What is that? It's, it's just a Hebrew wordplay, Hebrew imagery, Hebrew idiom. Um, literally, you could just say the valley of deepest darkness. It's the valley where you cannot see your hand in front of your face. It doesn't necessarily refer to death. Yes, death is a great trial. This is just the deepest, darkest valley you could possibly go through. But he won't fear any evil because the shepherd is with him. The shepherd is with him. What do you tend to think when you can't see anybody around you? What do you tend to think when you are in that valley of deepest darkness? You tend to think, I'm all alone. Nobody's around me. 
That's why the psalmist instantly goes to, though I cannot see anyone around me, I know that my shepherd's with me. Why? He will not forsake us. He will not desert us. He will never leave us. So we know without a shadow of a doubt that he is with us. He is with us. Notice, our God is with us in the midst of the deepest, darkest circumstances of our lives. And he walks with us, and he keeps us in that valley. He could teleport us out of there. He could instantly say, we're done, no more valley, we're gone. Back to green pastures. But he stays in the valley with us and keeps us in that valley until we have learned what we need to learn, until we have grown the way that we need to grow. Where do your eyes tend to go when you are in the midst of suffering? Do you tend to look at, I need this, I want this, I wish I had this, I feel like I'm lacking this? Or do you look to God? We saw this in Psalm 77, the transition from I, me, my to God does this. God does this. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, We are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys It's important to note that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lie beside quieted waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil, nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also. In fact, I would say it this way. He leads us into valleys. Sometimes we think we're in a valley. We lost our way. We messed up. No, he leads us there. It is in the valleys, continuing this quote, with their trials and their dangers that we develop Christ-like character. Deuteronomy 2, verse 7 says it this way, The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. Deuteronomy is remembering the wilderness wanderings, 40 years of just manna and quail and that's it, and uh, water from a rock and nothing else. And it says this, these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. Therefore, you have lacked nothing. I'm sure that some Israelites stood up and went, nope. I lacked a home. I lacked a tent. I lacked some shade. I lacked a lot of things. All we did all day long was wander around. How about we lacked direction We kept thinking we were going the right way and we kept going, we've seen that tree before. We've seen that rock before. And God says, because I am your God and I was with you, you didn't lack anything. You you lacked nothing. Even in the valleys, if God is with us, since God is with us, we don't lack anything. Verse 4, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Two words, rod and staff. Rod is just basically like a little club, a little stick. It's the word shebet, and it is designed. Um, shepherds hold them, they keep them on their belt, and it's designed to just smack enemies that come up and just w- fight off any um, sh- wolves in the, in the midst of the sheep or anything like that. Just beat them away. The interesting thing is it's also used to discipline and correct the sheep. It's also used to bonk them on the nose if they've done something dumb. So this little stick that the shepherd would use to ward off the enemies, David says, that's a comfort to me. I know I will be protected. And then your staff, this is what you would think of when you think of a shepherd, right? The shepherd's crook. Your staff comforts me. Why? Because if I'm ever stuck, 
You can put that, the crook around me and pluck me out. If I'm ever stuck somewhere, you can pluck me out. If I'm going the wrong direction, nope, 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 this way, back, back, back. They comfort me. Why? Because I am guided, directed, and protected by my good shepherd. There's nothing we need. But, even though he has, this is crucial, even though he has the Shabbat, even though he has this little stick that he can beat off the enemies with, what does he say? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So even though you could ward off all of the enemies with the rod, David says, I'm still in the midst of the enemies. They're still all around me. They're still coming to destroy me. You haven't gotten rid of them. You just stand ready. And I am eating a feast in the midst of the trial. Again, please note, God does not pluck you out of the valley of deepest darkness and God does not take the enemies around you or the pain or the trial. He doesn't just remove it. He doesn't just say, we're done. That doesn't happen until heaven. He says, you're going to stay there and I will give you enough grace to survive. And I will provide a feast in the midst of your enemies. I'm not going to destroy the enemies, even though I could. Because you have a lesson to learn in the midst of it. To trust me. To trust me. You have anointed my head with oil. <laughs> we kind of think, something's not right there. That's the one that I don't like. That's not a good sounding thing. Got to go shower after that. In the Middle East, this is actually, back in ancient Near Eastern culture, this is showering. Um, when you come in from a long journey and you're all dusty and you don't just have a faucet to wash... This is the way that you would wash off the dirt. You would wash off all the dust. You'd get it out of your eyes, get it off of your hands, get it off of your feet. Similar to John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, this is a way to protect, to provide, to um, comfort. Uh, this is a way to, if you have any injuries like that are scabbing up, this is a way to put a little bit of Vaseline in them and make sure they're not um, hurting it's also, interestingly enough, it's also a way lice was apparently very prevalent back then. And this is a way to kill lice. Because if you stick a layer of oil on your head, lice can't breathe the oxygen. So this is a way that the shepherd takes care of the sheep in such a way that they will be protected, provided for. There is uh, peace, tranquility. And because of all of that, my cup overflows. My cup just overflows. It's just running over. Even in the midst of the deepest, darkest valley, God is with me. My cup overflows. We have luxury and provision like no other, even though we're having the meal in the presence of our enemies. This is probably similar to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 29, when David is in the oasis of En Gedi, in the midst of the desert. For those of you who have been to Israel, in the midst of just the worst heat and the worst desert in the world, there's a little oasis called En Gedi. It's just beautiful. You think you've just gone to it like a, a day spa. It's amazing. And David knows that God will provide those things spiritually every single second of the day. He will take care of you. He will provide sustenance even when you are struggling in the deepest, darkest valley. It's interesting. God does this to another person. David kind of gets it. God does this to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember the prophets of Baal? They're all killed on Mount Carmel. 
Um, Elijah runs, uh, runs away, runs uh, many, many miles, sprints it faster than a chariot. He just had the greatest triumph of his life. And then days later, um, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, he says, I wish I was dead. I'm the only person that loves God anymore, and I wish I was dead. And God provides in amazing ways to meet Elijah's needs, and he just doesn't get it. He struggles. He struggles. He's constantly saying, are you there? Do you even care? Do you see me? David in En Gedi says, oh, I know you care. Elijah, in his own oasis of En Gedi, so to speak, says, God, do you care? So the reality is, we have two roads we can take when we are in the midst of that oasis. Will we be like David and trust God will provide and sustain? Or will we be like Elijah? Will we cast our cares upon God because First Peter 5 says he cares for you? Or will we look internally and say, nobody sees, nobody cares, I'm all alone. We need to make sure we're looking in the past to see the faithful provision of our great shepherd. We need to make sure we're trusting the shepherd's provision in our present trials. But it doesn't end there. Verse 6, it ends in verse 6. And this is really looking to the future. And I would say it this way. Number three, we need to rest assured in the shepherd's provision in the future. Rest assured in the shepherd's provision in the future. So you don't doubt his character and provision in the present. But then, if I can say it this way, you are biblically optimistic about the future. This is the confidence of David, even though he is in the deepest, darkest valley. He says, verse 6, Surely, I know this to be true. There is no way this will not happen. Goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness. Um, Those of you who have been to Israel know that the the way you say good morning in Hebrew is boker tov. Tov, good. I just desire the good for you, the best thing possible. That's what's going to follow us. Loving kindness. Your Bible might say mercy the hesed of God, that um, unconditional love that pursues us no matter what we are going through, no matter what we've done. If I could just... This was a testimony from my life. Um, when I was in seminary, I hated studying biblical languages. Hated it. And uh, this verse changed my love for biblical languages. This, this is the verse that did it. You know when you can look back on life and see when you're just struggling with something and then you get it? This is the verse that did it for me. I always read this verse. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I read it like, follow me like a dog. Like, you know, come on, follow me. Here we go. And as I'm walking, they'll come behind me. Again, if I could translate this differently, I would. And I believe that the the translators would as well. That word is used in a Hebrew translation of a New Testament passage as persecute. You could also translate it pursue, run down, aggressively chase. So it's not, as I'm walking, the dog just kind of walks behind me. Oh, I've got a buddy. Think of it as a pit bull chasing you down because you have, like, steak in your shoes. Goodness and loving kindness will pursue you and find you and cling to you no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, they will find you. That's what this passage says. And when I saw that for the first time, that's when I went, okay, I love studying biblical languages. Because now I have hope. 
no matter what comes, I believe that Psalm 23, verse 6 is really in the New Testament. Romans 8, no matter what comes, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And in fact, Psalm 23 is going further. The love of God will chase you down no matter where you are. If you're in the valley of deepest darkness, it will find you. In a place where nobody else could find you, God's love and his goodness and his mercy will find you. And it will find you all the days of your life. There is no day in your life that God's love and mercy is not hunting you down. I love that. And because of that, David says, I know I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Literally in the Hebrew, it's I will return to the house of the Lord forever or to the tabernacle of God forever. So in the near, uh, in what David is saying, he's saying, even though I am at a place where I do not praise the Lord, I don't desire the Lord, I don't want the Lord, I know I will go there again with great hope and great anticipation of hearing from him, of being satisfied by him. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know that's going to happen. But I think we can, because of the New Testament, because of the promises that we have in the Bible, I think we can put that even further. Not only dwell in the house, in the tabernacle, or in the church of God, I will, even in the midst of those weeks where you, you think Saturday, Saturday night rolls around, and you think, I don't want to go to church tomorrow. Why would I want to go to church tomorrow? We're going to sing songs praising God, and I frankly don't think he's praiseworthy right now. Does he even know what's happened this week? Does he even care about me? We'll, we'll get to Psalm 42, and that's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 42. I'm not praising God. I, I don't see a reason to. I know I will praise him again, but right now I can't praise. I'm struggling. I think David's there in verses 4 and 5, and in verse 6, he optimistically says, I know that there will be a day when I will be exuberantly, passionately in love with God and just praising him at the top of my lungs. For us, I believe that this carries on into heaven. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Are you a biblically optimistic person? Forget the biblical. Are you an optimistic person? Or are you a pessimistic person? Just generally speaking. I read um, a statistic that said the average person has three negative thoughts for every one positive thought. I actually think that it's probably worse than that. But... It said this, when we are talking with our families, it goes up. Nine out of ten statements with family members are critical or negative or pessimistic. Are you known for seeing the bad in everything? I don't like this. I wish this were different. I don't want this. Why can't this be this way? Nothing's good. Or are you known for, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. He pursues me, I'll pursue him, and I know it's, it's all going to be okay. You remember Fanny Crosby? She was uh, blinded by childhood by an incompetent doctor. She died in 1915, but not before leaving us 9,000, over 9,000, and that is not a misstatement, over 9,000 hymns she wrote. And they are so incredibly, biblically optimistic. Listen to her optimistic perspective. I want to read just one, uh, a couple stanzas from one of her hymns. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. 
many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. What? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Everybody enjoys blessings that I don't because they can see and I can't. No, no. Many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. You know how old she was when she wrote that? She was 12 years old. Are you biblically optimistic? Are you resting assured in the shepherd's provision in the future? Do you remember the shepherd's provision in your past? Do you trust the shepherd's provision in the present trials you are going to, going through? Could you turn with me to Revelation? We'll end in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Jeff Kirkland actually ended here as well. There are so many passages in Scripture that detail God as our great shepherd. But here's just one. And it's the the irony of ironies that our great shepherd is a lamb. Our great shepherd took upon humanity to become a lamb. Become like us, stupid sheep. He became a lamb. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. They, this is specifically those who go through the tribulation, Um, and ultimately enter into heaven, but I believe it refers to all believers. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Why? Why are we going to hunger no longer? Why are we going to thirst no more? Why will we be ultimately satisfied? It's not because we're not going to be bitten by sharks in heaven when we're surfing. It's not because we're going to have new bodies that don't fall apart. Not because all of our friends will be there. It's not because uh, you, the list goes on and on. You know, you can eat donuts to your heart's delight and they don't show up anywhere um, in lumpy places on your body. Um, it's not going to happen. That's not why. We will be satisfied forevermore, verse 17, because the Lamb is in the center of the throne and He will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to the springs of the water of life And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Our great shepherd is a lamb. He became one of us so that he could take our place, die our death, rise again in newness of life. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world is standing now alive. And he will lead us yet again. One last time before the throne where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God sees each tear that falls. God holds them in a bottle, uh, the psalmist says. God knows what you're going through, and here's the reality. He is faithful. He is our great shepherd. And we would do well to have a theology of remembering where we remember in the past how he provides. We hope in the present that we know he will provide for us and take care of us. Even in the midst of the trials that he will not take us out of, he leaves us in, he even guides us to. And in the midst of it, with biblical optimism, we say, oh, God will be my hope and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for this psalm that reminds us to look to the past, to look to the future, to live in the present in such a way that we would be preaching to our souls, you are a faithful God. 
God, I pray for every soul in this room. Suffering is relative, and so I'm sure that there is suffering going on in practically every soul. Maybe there are needs that they feel that they have that are really wants. God, I pray that you would graciously show them you are their shepherd so they don't lack anything. Maybe there is a thirst. Maybe there is a deepest, darkest valley that they feel that they cannot get out of no matter how hard they try. And and the reality is you want them to stay there because you are with them. You will guide them. And they will yet again come to a place where they come with great anticipation to the house of God to hear from you. God, I pray for those that are currently in the deepest, darkest valley of their lives. Give them hope. Sustain them. Help us to be a compassionate people that would come alongside each other in the midst of those valleys and not say, why don't you hope in God? What's wrong with you? He's faithful. Help us not be like Job's friends when they were continually preaching at Job in his despair. Help us be like Job's friends in those first seven days when they were actually wise and they sat with Job and said nothing. God, if we know enough people, we will always be weeping with those who weep. So help us to do that, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. But in all of it, may we spotlight your faithfulness in our lives and turn back to that day after day after day. We pray it all in your name. Amen.